Hello and welcome to From Big Pharma to Recovery, the intersection of the opioid epidemic and the criminal legal system. I'm your host, Brian Lovins. Last episode, we started talking about the importance of assessment and accessing treatment while incarcerated. On today's episode, Providing Treatment in the Criminal Legal System, we're going to discuss how MOUD programs are viewed within the judicial branch and the critical role that external motivation can play in initiating treatment and recovery. We're also going to take a look at how these programs are perceived by people working in the prison, probation, and parole systems, and discuss the intersection of community treatment and community corrections. Then we'll spend some time talking about how the narrative about people who use opioids can change. We'll explore how to create a better understanding of MOUD programs in these settings. We'll look at the role judges play in promoting and expanding MOUD programs and services. And lastly, we'll learn what can be done legislatively to increase the impact of these programs. Today, we're talking with Dr. Jennifer Clark, formal medical program director for the Rhode Island Department of Corrections and current medical director of the COVID unit for the Department of Health. Beth Connolly, director of the Substance Use Prevention and Treatment Initiative of the Pew Charitable Trusts. Pew Charitable Trust works on bringing evidence-based treatment and reducing barriers to accessing treatment to states and working at the federal level to also increase access to medications for opioid use disorder. Brittany Garrett, Director of Law Enforcement Training and Outreach for PARI, the Police Assisted Addiction and Recovery Initiative. Brandon George, Director of Indiana Addictions Issues Coalition and also the Vice President of Mental Health America, Indiana. Jan Kemper, a senior legislative attorney for LAPA, the Legislative Analysis and Public Policy Association. LAPA is a nonprofit based out of DC, which focuses on finding solutions to the opioid epidemic, criminal justice reform, medication for addiction treatment, and correctional settings. Circuit Court Judge Dwayne Sloan, Circuit Court and Drug Recovery Court Judge in East Tennessee in the 4th Judicial District. Judge Sloan, is also the chairman of the Tennessee Judicial Opioid Initiative and the chairman of the Appalachian Midwestern Regional Judicial Opioid Initiative. Judge Sloan, why don't you start us off? Does stigma play a role in the way judges approach people who use opioids? Stigma is alive and powerful. You know, we've made improvements, I think, across the board. However, the lack of understanding that it is a disease of the brain is a powerful thing. And that goes from the top to the bottom. I mean, when you're talking about executive branch level all the way down to people locally, I take it as one of my jobs to educate people. And so where I have that standing, then that's what I endeavor to do. And as we teach more and more people, then they also become teachers. The stigma that's alive and well, you know, when you're talking about corrections staff, you know, you got the guy that's in charge says yes. But working through correction staff, the medical providers that are providing the care already, all those barriers, that takes time and it takes persistence. It's education, 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 and and having peer-to-peer engagement. Uh, Now, if I can have my sheriff talk to his fellow sheriffs, you know, I can talk to judges. I got got background kind of with uh, DAs, but still, if I can have a DA to a DA, it's better. If I can have a corrections officer to a corrections officer, that's better. I think we need to think in terms of peer-to-peer engagement to overcome stigma. But I agree with former Surgeon General Jerome Adams that stigma is the leading cause of death in the United States of America. We keep coming back to the same underlying issue. 
The stigma associated with opioid use is powerful and impacts all components of the system. Is there anything that can be done from your perspective that can change this? Going back to education and making sure that we're constantly educating judges, anybody that has a touch point from the clerk at the front desk to the probation officer to law enforcement to everyone to learn to use the non-stigmatizing or hurtful language because language matters. Words hurt. Even having the conversations, you know, one of the kind of things that we're on now is when, you know, someone comes in, they say, well, I had, you know, I've been clean for six months. And we're like, well, wait a minute. To say you've been clean for six months implies that you're at some point dirty. You have a substance use disorder. Let's be honest, it's not just the court system. The stigma attached to opioid use is problematic through all of corrections. But as Judge Sloan shared, stigma can be overcome with education and support. Brittany, how have you taken on stigma in your department? Early, early on, we started to have meetings with a bunch of different entities, everyone from people in recovery to family members who've lost loved ones to faith-based community, judges, prosecutors, other police departments, healthcare providers, treatment providers. We kind of all got in the same room together and we were like, hey, there's a big problem. We know that a lot of people are dying from this drug and we're also seeing crime related to this drug as well. So we got to figure something out. What, what can we do? And bringing everybody together, I think, was really, really great because it allowed us to see things outside of our silo because we're thinking of it as we're responding to a lot of overdoses. We're arresting a lot of people. This doesn't seem to be ending or fixing or anything changing. What can we do differently? But we had to learn what the rest of the system was doing and what needed to change in all of our areas of the world. And so getting together and having those conversations early on allowed us to find a place to change something in our area, to be able to move that forward. And, you know, it's taken years, but we're seeing that across the state. The only way you can figure that out is by having those conversations and getting that buy-in. And what I found was that more doors opened than they closed. And there were a lot of people that were willing to talk to law enforcement who was willing to change how we're doing things and willing to learn. Often we measure our successes and less failure, but we have to continue to remind ourselves that success leads to positive attitudes. The more we can talk about the positive outcomes from our programs, the more we change the landscape. Sheriffs don't want people dying. They don't want people dying in their jails. Like, they get a bad rap. Like, the, like that's not the intent here, right? It's a lot of misinformation. Most of them don't feel comfortable with it. There's a lot of outside pressure. And so once they see things working, once they see recidivism dropping, once they see people not dying, leaving their jail, usually that switch happens quickly. Once they see the benefit of it, my experience is, is then that change in belief happens much more rapidly. I think one of the difficult hurdles to overcome is that treatment is seen as soft on crime, and it is really hard for elected officials to be tagged with being soft on crime. Our regular criminal docket doesn't look like any other criminal docket that I've ever seen because this is the whole culture. It takes time and a commitment to not overly concern yourself with a perception of being somehow soft on crime. So now we have, though, the evidence to show that this is actually being smart on crime because we're addressing what was driving substance use disorder and addiction, we're therefore reducing crime. Great point, Judge. Shifting our focus to some of the root causes has long-term positive impacts. Being able to show that we are making a difference in people's lives is important as well. 
I have specific officers, specific people internally that I know are the continuing champions of this message. And those are the ones that are specialty in, in this in this field. Just like different officers, some that are really, really good at taking reports or doing narcotics interactions or traffic stops or things like that. The same I feel for this, that everyone needs a baseline understanding of this, but I have specific officers, specific people that I know who are at a level of like empathy and compassion and their ability to want to help people in this way is something that's just sort of innate to what they do. And so those are the ones that I go to first when I need help. And they're also more willing to volunteer and do those things. I think it just comes down to accountability as well. The ability to treat people with respect and be compassionate is a non negotiable. And internally, that's always been something that if we ever thought that somebody would not be in the right headspace to handle that, then we do what we can to kind of deal with that internally, but also continue that education. They've been told this is one of your major jobs, keeping the person safe, keeping the people in prison safe and keeping drugs out of it. And now you're saying we're going to give them drugs, but explaining why that is different. And a lot of times listening to their concerns, because they're the ones who watch these people get their medication. They're the ones that know, okay, this is what the reality is. And explaining like, how can we work to both validate their concerns, but also have them help fix the problem or help them figure out what's the best way to do so. In our LAPA's Medication for Addiction Treatment and Correctional Settings Act, one of the sections we have is a required training and educational program for people in correctional settings who are working because leaving them out of the equation, you're, you're asking for failure. It sounds like half the battle is just getting people who work in the criminal legal system to buy into having MOUD available. We know that judges often have a large influence into what happens in the community. Judge Sloan, I'm curious, What can judges do to support the integration of MOUD into local practices? Having these four essential components, one was the accurate assessment done by this licensed clinical social worker, and then that warm handoff to the best available treatment for the right amount of time, and number two, the frequent accountability from the officer, and then three, leverage. I have every one that cares about an adult that has a substance use disorder wishes they have, and that's control over their liberty. I can come as close to making them do something as anyone can. And you know, the research shows that there's statistically really no difference to basically being forced, if you will, into treatment and voluntarily going into it. And so the idea there is wisely use that leverage to keep them engaged in treatment long enough, and then stabilization occurs They start wanting it, right? After three or four months, the brain starts waking up, it starts healing. And then we back off on the frequency of the accountability with the probation officer over a period of time, and it's open-ended. The fourth component's relationship. You know, you're, you're looking at people that, most of them with high adverse childhood experience scores that aren't used to encountering people in authority and experiencing good outcomes. You have somebody in like the position of a judge that is affirming them. That's a powerful thing. Having a probation officer that they don't feel condemned by and learn that they can trust is a powerful thing. With Ten Rocks, one of the things that just kind of evolved out of it was the ability to use these smartphones that everybody has, right? So the probation officer knows that Sally Smith, who shoots five grams of heroin in her neck every day, has been showing up to the methadone clinic every day for a week. She does not show up one day 
and the methadone clinic contacts the probation officer and says she didn't show up, we know that she's off the rails. We know what she's doing, right? So within minutes, the probation officer contacts the criminal justice liaison and me. Within 15 minutes, there's a warrant prepared and electronically signed. Within 30 minutes, the sheriff has it in his hands to go get Sally. Not to punish Sally, to save Sally's life so we can start over. And, and what is so important in is this area is that rapid response, especially you have someone with a high risk of overdose death, like the example I just gave, and that's a real case scenario. You have to be able to respond rapidly to save her life because job number one with us is saving people's lives. I haven't figured out how to work with dead people, but we want to keep you alive and then we want to get you well and keep you well. There's a lot to be done on the ground, but it can't only come from individual actors across the country. We need to start seeing changes in legislation and policies as well. There's actually a group of access policies that we're working on at the federal level. So the first is the elimination of the waiver to prescribe buprenorphine. Evidence and research shows that obtaining the waiver is an impediment and a barrier that doctors cite and uh, mid-level practitioners cite in not prescribing. Others include not knowing about other treatment services in their area or thinking they don't have the capacity in their practice to do it. But since buprenorphine can be prescribed in the doctor's office, and you know, it's your primary care physician, it's a no-brainer that we should have access there where people feel a trust with their healthcare provider. The other work that we're doing right now at the federal level has to do with the federal relaxations offered during COVID. Treatment for patients with opioid use disorder and substance use disorder often entailed both medications and counseling. If you're going to receive methadone, you need to go to an opioid treatment program as per federal regulation, federal law, and this requires that you go every single day in person to the opioid treatment program to receive your methadone and then to receive counseling, companion counseling. So recognizing during COVID that people should not be gathering in large groups, the federal government offered waivers or relaxation so folks could get medications for take-home. So making this waiver of an expansion of the ability to take home their methadone and their medications has proven that we're already seeing through some of the research that's been conducted during COVID that this has been very successful, that people feel more confident taking their medications home. Imagine having to go every day to the doctor's office to get your insulin. It interrupts your ability to work. It interrupts your ability to participate in your community. You know, if you need childcare before you can go to the opioid treatment program every day. These are all reasons why people may not seek treatment because thinking having to go there every single day. The barriers to getting treatment are definitely overwhelming at times. It reminds us how hard it is on the people who use opioids, as well as the emotional toll it takes on people who work in the system. Taking care of all individuals in society makes everyone healthier and safer. There's a famous quote, and I don't know who said it, but every system is perfectly designed for the results it gets. We have a system of corrections that is perfectly designed to keep people in the system. We have a system that labels an individual, 
makes it more difficult for them to get a job, makes the only way some people can survive by doing illegal activities. So we've got this system that feeds on itself to incarcerate more people instead of treating the root problems, dealing with the mental health issues, making medical issues, making it affordable, allowing people to be productive and active members of society, at their families. Think of an overdose death, and I've heard people say, yeah, it's a junkie, better off without that person. But there are three kids at home, and now the grandparents are raising them, but the grandparents aren't going to be around as long. Kids end up in foster care, then it's a multi-generational problem. And if we don't care about people with opioid use disorders, you know, we're not caring about their kids. We're not caring about the whole family. It's important to remember that everybody is somebody's son or daughter, and they may have done some terrible things. It doesn't make them a terrible person. No doubt. We need to remember that people who use opioids are human beings who have faced tough challenges in their lives and that they need as much support as possible to find successful paths forward. We've had a over five year period of time, like a downward trend of 50% of overdose deaths contrasted to others. Crimes charged in Jefferson County over the last three years, consistent trajectory down by 33%, 50% reduction in burglary rates in Granger County. We had no jail overcrowding in either county before COVID reduction. We have had a 50% reduction in Tennessee Department of Corrections inmates serving local sentences over the last two years. And we've had over 100 healthy babies born. And it's using this strategy. And going back to your original question about buy-in, when Judge Sloan was giving this person their, wasn't just the first chance or second chance, but it was fifth, sixth, seventh time. You've used, we brought you in, another assessment, maybe a different level of care, and we start over. Now, the assistant district attorneys, law enforcement, and others wouldn't literally roll their eyes back, but they kind of were. Like, what are you doing, Judge? I had to stand firm because of my conviction that this was going to work, and I did. And then they start seeing the changes in the people that we were trying to help. Sometimes it took that seventh, eighth, ninth time. I think from a Judges' perspective and just a message to judges, we in the judiciary, our jobs are not to be necessarily locked into a position or advocates. I mean, we should be pursuing the truth. So commit yourself to understanding the truth about substance use disorders and co-occurring disorders. Commit yourself to understanding the truth about it. Make application of that truth in your vocation understand the truth about it and use your standing in the community to reduce stigma. Use your standing in the community to be able to increase housing opportunities and reduce other barriers. We have an incredible, unique position as judges to influence outcomes from the bench to our communities to everywhere else. Take responsibility to educate yourself and then go out and inform others Thank you for joining us, and for more information, visit the Opioid Response Network, MOUD, and Corrections page, which we'll link in the description of this episode, 
And while you're there, check out the other resources available, submit a request for your own technical assistance, and don't forget to check back for our final episode, Recovery, Multiple Pathways, Multiple Options.